All right. So, um, we it's been two weeks. Um, it's been more than that since I've had some of y'all. So let me just kind of update you where we're at. We're in John chapter 13. So the first 11 chapters of John are organized around seven different major miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, and they're all called signs, right? And the sign points to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Uh, and by believing in him, we may have life in his name. So that's the theme of John's gospel, which is in John chapter 20, verse 30. Um, then in chapter 12, it transitions into Jesus' passion, right? Um, what he has been calling his hour. Uh, that is the hour of suffering and death on the cross for our sins. Um, chapter 12 is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We celebrate that every year with Palm Sunday. And, um, uh, you know, there, there's a voice from heaven that speaks as, as, you know, Jesus says, glorify your name and I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Um, the people are divided over whether they believe in Jesus or not. But essentially at the end of chapter 12 or, or toward the end, he withdraws from public ministry, right? He's been ministering publicly for three, probably three or three and a half years up until that point. And so he withdraws from public ministry. And uh, so if we look, if, if we correlate what is going on in John with what is going on with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then it appears that chapter 12 of John covers uh, Sunday through Tuesday in the last week of Jesus' earthly life, what we normally call Holy Week when we celebrate that um, or observe it. Wednesday is a, it's a day of silence, they call it, because we don't find anything going on. Well, in John's gospel, we see that Jesus withdrew at that point and was just with his closest disciples, right? The twelve. Um, now we're in chapter 13 and we're in the upper room. And this is, right, what we call the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. Um, interestingly, the Synoptic Gospels, that's what we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, present, you know, the, that it was a Passover meal and that Jesus, uh, with those elements from the Passover meal, he takes the bread and breaks it and says, this is my body, which is for you. Uh, you know, as often as you eat it, you're going to remember my suffering. You're going to remember, you know, that I died for you. Uh, this is the this is the cup of uh, the new covenant, which is in my blood. And you know, when you drink it, you it's my blood that is shed, and so forth. And of course, that's what we remember every time we observe communion or the Lord's Supper, right? Now, interestingly, <clears throat> John is the last gospel that was written, and. Um, he recognizes that these other gospels are around and people are familiar with that. So he emphasizes other things. He focuses on other things, right? So in John's gospel, we get to chapter 13, upper room, right? Uh, Lord's Supper, but he doesn't focus on the Lord's Supper. John doesn't even talk about it, right? They're around the table. We see that, okay? But what he focuses on is two things. Number one, the washing of the disciples' feet. And that's what we looked at uh, two, time, two meetings ago when we were in here, uh, that he washed their feet. Um, and then what we're going to look at here uh, tonight is the betrayal, uh, Judas' betrayal of Jesus, okay? Uh, so let's transition between the washing of the feet and uh, this, this betrayal. Um, we're going to be in John chapter 13. We're in verse 12. I'm going to go to uh, John 13, 12 through 17. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Then when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're correct, for so I am. So if I, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example so that you also would do just as I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. That's a really good verse to memorize, by the way, John 13, 17. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. 
So when we go to church, we hear a lot of words, we sing songs, right? We get a lot of Bible lessons, but what do we do about that? Um, last time uh, I was going to call the, the Bible study, uh, I try to put a title with these Bible studies. I was just gonna call it, Just Do It. In fact, I think that's how we posted it. And I changed it because we never got to this verse. Um, but it's not enough to know. It's not enough to accept and agree with the teaching, right, of Jesus or the teaching of the Bible. We need to do it. There's too much talk in church and there's not enough action. Um, now, that's not everybody. It's just a lot of folks, okay? Um, there is an 80-20 principle in churches, and that is 20% of the people do 80% of the work, right? Um, but it's more than that. It's not just, you know, serving around the church like Brandy was willing to run upstairs and do. It's... Um, you know, being willing to live out your Christian faith and serve other people on a daily basis, your family members, friends, and even people, you know, coworkers, and even people that are outside your circle, um, just helping people that are in need. You know, somebody's got a flat tire. Um, you know, if you can offer assistance, hey, can I call somebody for you? You know, AAA something, blah, blah, blah. You know, or if you know how to change a tire, you know, pulling over and helping them. I carry a pair of jumper cables in the back of my truck. Um, the truck's fairly new, so it doesn't need to be jumped. Although the battery died, by the way, a year and a half after brand new truck, year and a half old battery died. I had to have it towed. <laughs> That's how ridiculous that is. Right. But I have a pair of jumper cables, um, primarily. So if other people, uh, have a dead battery, right. Cause I, I just think, man, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. You know, pop the hood, put the jumper cables on. But they're so appreciative. It's little things, right? And people don't have to be Christians to do these things. But as Christians, that's what we're supposed to be doing. And that's what the foot washing business is about, okay? Um, washing feet is about service. Um, now, there are Christian groups. I don't know. Have you ever heard of a, a Christian group or a church that does foot washing in their service? Yeah, like they're, they, they used to call it the old foot washing Baptists, right? And so they, you know, the, we, we call them ordinances. There is the Lord's Supper and there's baptism and those are the ordinances. Uh, in fact, I'm gonna talk to a young man on Sunday uh, who wants to be baptized. Um, but those are the, uh, the, the observances that Jesus commanded us to continue um, doing. But there is debate among some as to whether Jesus intended for us to go on washing each other's feet. Um, most churches, denominations, uh, would agree that, no, that's not what Jesus was trying to say, right? In fact, he says, I'm, this is an example for you, okay? We don't, we don't do the same thing today. We wear shoes. We wear socks, okay? So... There is a, still a lowly idea of washing feet, but <clears throat> for these people, it was a necessity, right? It was a need that they had. When you go into the house, now there are still people in our day that will make you take your, your shoes off at the front door of their house, okay? Um, it's a practice in Japan. Um, on Tuesday nights, this becomes a karate club in here. That's why there, there are punching bags over there and my bow staff is over there because we had our karate club in here Tuesday. That's why the room is set up with those chairs way in the back because where you're sitting right now was just open floor so I can do my karate club. Well, I, I always you know, follow the tradition and there's practical reason for this and then there's uh, ceremonial, if you will, reason for this. But you take your shoes off at the door. You don't wear shoes in here. You take your shoes off the door. Now, I'll let kids wear their socks and so forth, especially I teach a class at The Rock as well, which is a, a remote facility. And uh, that carpet is so dirty. Oh my gosh. I mean, I take my shoes and socks off anyway, but my feet are just, the bottoms of them are just horrible after walking around on that carpet, right? But it's kind of a, you know, a, a respect type of a thing. But also there are people that have you do that in their home because they just, who knows what you've been walking on outside, right? You know, you walk through spittle and gum and whatever, and then you track that into the house. So that's why 
you know, back in the day, uh, and maybe your house is like this, I don't know, but they, they had a mudroom for a house, right? Because you're out there slogging through everything and you, you go into the mudroom and you take your shoes off and then you go into the house, right? Um, so, you know, it's cleanliness, respect. Well, I mentioned that because these folks wore open-toed sandals, right? They didn't wear socks. Their feet were filthy. Now, you notice, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more because we need to look at the seating arrangement when we get to this part where we talk about Judas' betrayal. Um, but they didn't, they didn't sit in chairs with their feet under the table like us. Okay? No, what they did is they reclined, right, against the table. Um, now, your feet are, you know, kind of kicked out in a way, but still, your feet are on the same level as your body, and it's just dirty, Right? It's just your feet are just caked with dirt. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to run around barefooted in the summer all the time. That's, I just basically never wore shoes. And my feet were just, you know, they were like shoes, <laughs> you know. They were tough on the bottom and they were just caked with dirt all the time and so forth. Um, so the idea here is that you lower yourself and serve at that level. Well, today it just, it doesn't, the translation is not there, right? Because then you have to take your shoes off and take your socks off. And it's just, honestly, it's just weird, right? And I've been in services where we've done it and uh, I've been in youth groups where we've done it. But my, the first youth minister I had, um, really, really cool guy, his name was Don Mapes. And uh, we were at a camp, I think, and he said, you know, we don't wash feet anymore, but we wash our hands. And so he proceeded, he had a basin and he proceeded to get a, a cloth and he came around and washed all of our hands. It was so meaningful, right? It was just very meaningful. Um, and so again, this is not to say you, you can't wash feet, right? Or substitute something like washing hands. But the application is broader than that. In the end, as I, you know, I stole the Nike phrase last week or two weeks ago and then didn't even get to this. We need to stop talking about it and just do it, okay? Um, do something about your alleged faith before it becomes your former faith. All right, John, John 13, 18 through 20. And Jesus says, I am not speaking about all of you. I know the ones whom I have chosen, but this is happening so that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then he quotes the Psalms. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. So earlier uh, in chapter 13, when Jesus was washing the feet, and Peter was like, no, whoa, you're not going to wash my feet. Okay, and Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then Peter said, well, don't wash my feet only. Wash my hands, wash my head as well. Okay, and Jesus said, Peter, Listen, okay, if you've taken a bath, you only need to wash your feet. See, for this is why the hand thing works, right? You've taken a shower, you only need to wash your hands, okay? Um, the idea. And then Jesus said, and you are clean, but not all of you. So he was insinuating that there was somebody sitting at the table that was not clean, right? Their thinking was not clean. And of course, he's referring to Judas, okay? Um, now, he tells the 12 that he's not even speaking to all of them. In fact, he's not chosen all of them. Well, that seems odd, right? He did choose the 12, right? I mean, we have that record in all of the synoptic gospels and Judas is always one of the ones that he chose. So obviously, he chose Judas with the foreknowledge that the man was false and would become a betrayer. And then there's this messianic passage uh, that he quotes, the, he who has eaten my bread has lifted up his heel against me, and that's Psalm 41.9. So here's the question. This is a big question, right? This gets at the way you view reality, I guess, okay? Is everything just fated to be? Is everything just determined? 
and we're just kind of going through the motions, right? Well, you know, some people think like that, okay? Some people that are really smart think like that. Uh, philosophers, uh, they call them determinists, think like that. Um, there was a philosopher, a famous philosopher named uh, Spinoza, and he was a determinist. And he said, we are like rocks that have been thrown into the air and become conscious aware. And then when we reach the apex of gravity and we start going back down, we just presume that we made that decision. Well, although there are plenty of determinists around, um, I think that you and I would be very uncomfortable with that kind of thinking, right? Where's justice and all that? If everything is determined, you can't be held accountable or responsible for anything you do, right? All of these horrific things that are going on in the Middle East right now in Israel, right? The, the, the horrible, you know, kidnappings and brutality and all of that just junk that went on on October 7th. And now Israel is striking back and there's plenty of collateral damage and horrible things that are going on uh, in Gaza uh, as a result. But nobody's responsible, if everything's just faded and it's all determinism, then nobody's responsible. That can make you feel really bad or it can make you feel really good. Like, well, then whatever. I'll just do whatever I want to do, okay? But it takes out this whole idea of justice. Why do we even have a justice system, right? If this is the way it is. So there are people that think, well, Judas didn't even have a choice here. He was just fated to do this, you know? And so he just, you know, had a part to play and he played his part without meaning to, all right? Um, so I talked about philosophic, that philosophical view called determinism. Um, in Christian circles, there is a school of thought called Calvinism. And they believe in a very, very strong view of predestination. Um, they would make the case that Jesus' foreknowledge of Judas doing this uh, is really no different than predestination. They're really the same thing, since what God foreknows will indeed and in fact happen. So that extends for Calvinists to the election of those who will be saved. A verse often quoted by uh, Calvinists in this regard is Romans 8.29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So do we really have free choice to be saved even? What about those who are not chosen, right? If God chooses some to be saved, then obviously he's leaving the rest to be damned. This just doesn't seem to jive or, or make sense with the, the gospel that we've been taught, okay? Um, and so for Calvinist, Judas is a prime example of someone who is not among the elect, even though he was part of the group. This would be like people that are in church, but although they're there and they're nodding their heads like bobbleheads, right? We don't know what's going on in here, all right? And so, you know, for these folks, there's some that are, that are chosen and there's some that are condemned, basically. Well, the problem is, you know, this, let's take justice all the way to the afterlife. Why, why would God send anybody to hell? If this is true, how is hell even just? So God creates some people with the express purpose of throwing them in a lake of fire and burning them and tormenting them for eternity. I think we would have every reason to question whether or not that view of God is a view of a loving God, right? Well, the Calvinists are, you know, they're all about the glory of God. Their big focus is the glory of God. Well, this glorifies God, okay? Um, but I think, you know, the point that I made last Sunday uh, in teaching from 1 John, uh, or at least a, a minor point that is, is really a major point in the grand scheme of things, is that God created the universe and he created you out of love. Yes, this glorifies him, right? God is glorious, right? But that's an adjective that describes, you know, God's character, his personality, he is glorious. But God is 
love. That's not an adjective, right? That's not just a descriptor. That's saying that is essential to God's character. You're here because God loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall have everlasting life, shall have eternal Are you a whosoever? You are. It doesn't say, for God so loved the elect that he gave his only begotten son, that the elect will be saved and everybody else will be damned. Now, Calvinists who are listening to this are going to hate me and leave all kinds of horrible comments, I'm quite sure. All right. Um, Judas could have chosen otherwise. I just make that point. And I'm going I'm to demonstrate this in a moment in this text. Okay. Um, if he had not betrayed Jesus, then God would have planned ahead and used another person who freely chose to betray Jesus instead. God foresees our free choice and has already planned accordingly. That's cool. You do have free choice. And God predestines in accordance with that, right? Now, my Calvinist friends will say, well, then that violates God's sovereignty. God just sovereignly chooses, and that's what really, really matters. Um, they say that what I am advocating here limits God's sovereignty, but I strenuously disagree. God didn't have to create us or the universe for that matter. It was his sovereign choice. God didn't have to offer grace. Jesus didn't have to die to save anyone. He chose to do so freely and for the sake of love. God sovereignly set up the system, friends. God sovereignly set it up. God sovereignly created you with free will. Um, he allows human beings a complete free will, and that is why there's a hell. Um, it is not God's will that any perish. That's what it says in Second uh, Peter 3, 9. And yet people do, in fact, violate God's will, and they're going to perish. Um, and then I quoted, for God so loved the world earlier, for God so loved the world, the entire world, but people refuse to repent and to receive his gracious and sovereign grace, his sovereign offer of eternal life. Human beings have been resisting God's will from the beginning. And that is why the world is in the terrible state it's in. People are like, I just don't understand this. If there's a God of love, then why all the blah, blah, blah? Well, you have free will and I have free will. And the members of Hamas have free will. You understand? And so that's why the world, if people follow Jesus, everything changes, okay? I played the, the video Sunday morning uh, from the, uh, it's a YouTube channel. Um, I'm forgetting their names now. Uh, somebody in Rhoda. Anyway, it's a, huh? Yes, yes. Uh, I, for some reason, I can't think of his name right now. But anyway, Serge, Serge and Rhoda, they have this YouTube channel and they live in Israel and they go to all these different archaeological sites and, you know, they're like always amazed. Well, I didn't realize it. He's a Jew and she's an Arab and they've been married for 14 years. But they're both Christians. They both love Jesus. The Jews and the Arabs have hated each other, you know, from the beginning Okay, let's go all the way back to Ishmael and Isaac. That's how long this thing's been going on. All right? But Christ is the Prince of Peace. He truly does bring people together, right? So if we're genuinely following Jesus, right, and we're not just listening to these things, but we're doing these things, and, and I've watched their videos before, and they're a great couple, Right, they're always they always ex exude this wonder. You know, every time they go to one of these archaeological sites, they're they're always oh, that is wow. You know, and they're looking at each other and smiling, and it's so genuine. It's not fake. You know, um, I showed the a part of the video Sunday morning, and it showed uh, a video from their wedding, and he said he said uh, I don't know where it was held. They live in Nazareth. Okay. 
Um, so they live in the, the Arab part of Israel. Okay, Nazareth is in the Arab part of Israel. Um, but in any event, um, he had like 30 guests, friends and family. She had 800 they had to start turning them away. They were amazed at what, you know, has been going on. And they've been married for 14 years because Jesus brings people together. Yes, they had to go to Cyprus in order to get married because it's illegal in Israel for you to marry. It's ridiculous. Right? But all of this, full circle around, right? Um, it's not God's will that anyone perish. He loves everyone, right? Jew and Gentile alike. Um, for God so loved the world, right? The whole world. Um, human beings have been resisting God's will from the beginning, and that's why the world's in the state it's in. All right, that's why, that's why I made that point. That is why judgment day is coming, and that is why hell has been created by God, to destroy those who resist him and do evil. So we look at the world and we see so much injustice, but judgment day is coming, and all the wrong will be made right. Amen? All the wrong will be made right, and that's why you and I need to be in God's will and doing what's right. We don't want to be among the wrong who are made right, right, by being thrown out of his uh, presence. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who receives anyone I send receives me, and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. So this is spoken to those Jesus has foreseen and chosen to represent him to the world. So he's saying this to the 11 and not to Judas, right? Because he's already said, I know who I'm talking to and I know who, I'm chosen, who I've chosen. So this right here, the one who receives the one, anyone I send receives me and the one who receives him, um, receives me, receives him who sent me. An apostle, right, is someone who is sent out. It's a, it's a delegate, a legate, if you will, in the ancient world. It's someone that is sent out to represent uh, unofficial, and in this case, the apostles are sent out to represent Jesus, and they're sitting around the table. That's why to receive them was also to receive him. Eleven of the twelve would be sent out as witnesses of the resurrection to testify to the world and preach the gospel. The Lord would add a num uh, another to replace Judas. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, uh, Peter and the other apostles chose a man named Matthias to replace um, Judas, but in all likelihood, the one that God chose was who? Saul, who became Paul and brought the gospel to a lot of people and wrote half the New Testament. <laughs> Matthias, bless his heart. I'm sure he did some work for the Lord, but we never hear anything about Matthias, okay? Um, but yeah, Saul of Tarsus, uh, God chose, you can read that in Acts chapter nine. So God's representatives, to, uh, God has representatives today too, but not with the authority or the firsthand experience of these first uh, 11 and then 12 men. However, those who testify about what Jesus has done in their lives and share the gospel do the same work. That's you. So you're not a, a big A apostle, but you are sent into your world to be the light of the world, right? And to share the love of Jesus with people. And when you do that, you represent him. And when they accept you, they're also accepting him. And if they accept him, they will also accept you, okay? Now we get to the betrayal part. When Jesus had said these things, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Lying back on Jesus' chest was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter nodded to this disciple and said, uh, and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. Then he, that is the disciple laying on Jesus' chest, simply leaned back on Jesus' chest and said to him, Lord, who is it? Then Jesus then answered, that man is the one for whom I shall dip the piece of bread and give it to him. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
After this, Satan entered him, that is, entered Judas. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you are doing, do it quickly. Now, none of the those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were assuming, since Judas kept the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we need for the feast, or else that he was giving something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, he left immediately, and it was night. So although Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, he wasn't angry or vengeful, was he? He was sad. He was hurt. He loved even Judas. Jesus loved Judas. Wow. The Lord offered Judas one last chance to repent. Now, we don't see this until and unless we understand what Jesus was doing when he gave Jesus the when he gave Judas the piece of bread dipped in the dish. First, let's understand the scene before we get to that, okay? The disciples are not sitting with a table at, you know, I don't know, above their waist with their legs under the table like we would, right? They're reclining at the table to eat. And this is different than when you and I sit at a table with others. Their table was low to the ground, probably the height of the chair you're sitting in, those of you in this room, okay? Um, And then they reclined with their legs pointed away from the table, leaning with one arm and using the other to eat. Now, I've known this for years, but I was looking into the details here, and it turns out that they were observing a custom that was common throughout the Roman world. It was not always common among the Jews, but at this point in time, it was. Um, This is uh, found in Craig Keener's commentary. Romans ate while reclining on couches, usually situated in a U-shape called a triclinium. Um, And they're situated in a U-shape around a low table. The triclinium had places of honor. Diners supported themselves on their left elbows and ate with their right hands. The ancients did not have forks, only knives and spoons. In any event, seated in this position, it was more convenient to eat with one's fingers, right? So paintings that we've seen of the Last Supper, uh, the famous Da Vinci painting, are inaccurate. Um, When Jesus broke the news that someone would betray him, John was reclining closest to his Lord's chest and could simply lean back and ask who the betrayer was as Peter requested. So here's a little little further detail um, from B.F. Westcott. He gives this interesting historical take on the incident. That the guests lay resting on their left arms stretched obliquely so that the back of the head of one guest lay in the bosom of the dress, that is, the the clothing, of the guest above him. Like this, right? Right at the table. Not like this, like this. This is the head of one person. This is the head of the other person, okay? So this person is on the left, behind this person. Uh, They reclined in threes on these couches, the triclinium. Three people, right? One, two, three. And three, okay? Here's the guy in the middle, right here. The guy in the middle, the person in the middle was the person of honor, okay? The next most honored person would have been, we think of the person on the right, but for them it would have been actually the person on the left, right? Um, that the guests lay resting on their left arms stretched obliquely so that the back of the head of one guest lay on the bosom of the dress of the guest above him. If three reclined together, the center was the place of honor, the second place above and to the left and the third below and to the right. If the chief person wished to talk with the second person, that's this one that's up here, it was necessary for him to raise himself and turn around for his, te- his head turned always away as he reclined. So you're reclining like this, okay? I can talk to this person because they're, they're right here. I, I'm talking right into their ear. But if I want to talk to this person, I'm going to have to 
turn around in order to do it. That's what he's saying, okay? I'm trying to get this in your head so you can understand what's going on. Um, so uh, he says here, that is, um, Westcott says, Peter then sitting in the second place, that's this place on the left, right? Was not in a favorable position favorable position for hearing any whisper from the Lord. So he could talk to Jesus, but he wouldn't have been able to hear Jesus whisper. Jesus would have had to make a you know, big deal of turning around and doing this. This is what King, uh, what uh, Westcott is saying. Um, but this would fall naturally on the ears of John. because So here's John right here, and Jesus can just whisper into his ear. That's what he's saying. This very incident, therefore, in which it has been supposed that St. John claims precedence over St. Peter shows the contrary, that he sets himself second to him. Maybe, but let's continue thinking about this. If Westcott is correct, John reclined to Jesus' right, Peter to the left and slightly above the Lord's head. If this was the case, then Judas must have been across from Jesus, but close enough to take the bread. Now, in contrast to this, Craig Keener believes it was Judas who reclined to Jesus left. And this just gives me chills. That's the place of honor. The, the central place of honor is where Jesus was. But the next place of honor was over here uh, to the left. It would deepen the betrayal since Judas sat in the position of greatest trust and honor next to the guest of honor. According to an ancient tradition... One showed greater honor to the person seated to one's left because one's left side was more vulnerable to assault. Hence, one showed greater trust. In other words, this is the person that's behind me. They, they could throttle me, choke me, stab me, whatever. Hmm. While Judas didn't attack at this moment, he would soon stab Jesus in the back, metaphorically. This arrangement would also make sense because Jesus could easily hand the bread to Judas on his left. Here's John, here's Jesus, here's Judas. Jesus simply dips the bread and hands it to him, just like that. It also makes sense because although Jesus couldn't have whispered to Peter, Peter could have asked Jesus because he was right here. Jesus, Peter could have whispered to Jesus, who is it, Lord? And Peter was brash and bold, and he would have done it. So this is why, as I read this, I thought, you know what? I think Keener is correct. And it's, it's creepy and scary. But it also shows that Jesus trusted God, and he was offering Judas an honor that was even greater than putting him in that position. Okay, um, let's uh, look at something else here. The first, this is the first time John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Going forward in the gospel, he's going to refer to himself in that way on, uh, I think, four other occasions. And that's why we call John, uh, John the Beloved. John lay closest to his Lord's heart. In John's gospel, the greatest honor is being close to Jesus. There is intimacy and affection implied here. John had come a long way from his sons of thunder days. That's what, uh, in the gospel of Mark, he and his brother James were called the sons of thunder, Buenerges. So here's a question for you. Would you rather be in the place of honor on the left or the position of intimacy on the right of Jesus? It seems to me that Intimacy with Jesus is far better than being honored before other people. Um, Keener says this, it is more essential here to note that the beloved disciple also serves an idealized literary function. As Jesus resided in the Father's bosom, remember John 1.18? For no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is what? In the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now we see a disciple who is in the bosom of Jesus, on you know the chest of, of Jesus. Um, so the beloved disciple rested on Jesus' bosom, and by implication, the same is true of believers. So I like this because 
I think that that's the position that the Lord would like to have you in. Not the position where you're being honored by Jesus. <laughs> I'm number two. Well, Jesus is number one, of course, but I'm number two. <laughs> I'm second, <laughs> right? Everybody's interviewing me in this chair and this is going everywhere and I'm wearing a bracelet. I'm second. <laughs> it's kind of a perverse irony in my, in my opinion that these, these people are, are humble and saying, you know, I am second and yet they're being interviewed and everybody's watching them and saying, you're amazing. Look, he's second. He's amazing. Oh, okay. All right. I'm not saying that that whole ministry is bad or anything like that. I just think it's, yeah, I, I don't think we were intended to be Christian celebrities, guys. I just don't. It's not the way it is. The, the most humble people are the ones that are going to, uh, their you know, names are being spoken in heaven as we sit here. Um, so, yeah, I, I hope, I've always said that John is my favorite disciple. He's my favorite Bible character. He's the one person in the Bible other than Jesus that I would like to be uh, like. And this is why. Um, now that we have a better picture of the scene, what is the significance of giving Judas the bread dipped in sauce? Was it just like a secret move? Watch this. It's this guy. See, it's him. It's him, right? The answer is, this was the last chance for Judas to return to the fold. Um, it's called offering the sop. It was a symbol of friendship and honor. Westcott informs us, quote, it is an Eastern custom at present, he's saying at the time that he was writing this, which was a century ago, by the way, um, for the host to give a small ball of meat to the guest whom he wishes to honor. The reference here may be to this custom, right? And then Keener confirms this by referring to the history at the time. Jesus apparently extends an offer of love even to Judas, in traditional Middle Eastern societies, it is a mark of special favor for the host to dip a piece of bread in the common sauce dish and hand it to a guest. So Jesus isn't being surreptitious. He's being deliberate. If Judas was here and Jesus is here, Jesus is saying, you don't have to do this. I love you. You're my friend. I wrote a play where I, you know, presented this scene and I just always had Judas just taking the bread and just, his heart's so hard at this point, he couldn't shed a tear if he wanted to. Although he does later when he sees what happens to Jesus, what happens to Jesus, okay? Um, sadly, Judas may have taken this rather than a sign of friendship. He may have taken this as a sign that his betrayal was the right course of action. Westcott says, quote, Judas in his self-will appears to have interpreted the mark of honor so as to confirm him in his purpose. People are so... They, they, our hearts can become so evil. After this, it says, Satan entered him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you, do, what you were doing, do quickly. Nowhere else in scripture does it say that Satan himself possessed anybody. You know, we say, you know, the devil made me do this. Or, you know, the devil's, you know, and Satan and, but Satan doesn't know you. He doesn't know me either. He's not, omnipresent, he's not omniscient, and you and I aren't making a big enough difference in this world for the devil to pay any attention to us. Now, he does have a lot of you know, servants in his army, right? We call them demons. That's not to say that those demons aren't doing the devil's bidding and influencing you. So, you know, when we say, you know, get behind me, Satan, it's not to say that I think the devil himself is in the room but, you know, if it's the lowliest demon, I don't want that being or entity in my presence. This is the only time uh, also that John speaks of Satan. He uses the term devil 
on three other occasions. In fact, uh, in John 8, 44, he tells the Pharisees that they are of their father, the devil. Satan means what? Do you know what the word means? Huh? No? Adversary. Adversary, opponent, enemy. Okay? Yeah. This is, you go from being my friend to being my enemy. Right? So they were the apostles of Christ. He became the apostle of Satan. Pretty disturbing. Um, so Satan doesn't just enter Judas. This, it's important to note that Judas made this decision himself. Satan didn't force him to make this decision. Satan didn't enter him until after he had firmly decided to betray Jesus, right? You got to open the door to let a demon in. They can't barge in and God won't barge in. Now you can listen to them as they, you know, knock on your door and send voices through the windows or whatever, but you've got to open the door. And you open the door not by saying, you know, hey, come on in, devil, let's have a party. You, you open the door by doing what he wants. And that's what Judas, as a matter of fact, had done. So contrast Judas the betrayer with John the beloved. John the beloved disciple on this side of Jesus, leaning against his chest, Judas the betrayer sitting above his head, plotting, planning, scheming. Oh, I'm just wondering, how did Judas get here? Well, had he just always been like this? Um, we know that Jesus was aware that he was going to be the betrayer all the way back in John chapter 6, verse 71. Was Judas always that way? We also know that he was stealing from the money box. We find that out in John chapter 12, I think it's verse one, right? When Mary washes Jesus' feet with the perfume, it's Judas that's offended. And John says, no, nah, he just wanted that money that uh, the perfume would have brought so you know he could have more money to steal from the money box. John's not real happy with Judas, okay? None of us are. But here's Judas sitting above Jesus' head, scheming, plotting, making this determination that he's going to betray Jesus. But why? What's going on here? Um, there's a show right now called The Chosen. Are you aware of this program? Okay. I can really recommend it. It's, it's not trying to present, you know, the gospels or anything blow by blow. It presents, uh, you know, these uh, the disciples as characters and they're interesting characters. The thing is, what really bothers me, and it's, I really, this guy, uh, that writes it and directs it. Um, uh, dude, I think he's got a handle on things. They introduced Judas last season. And he's not a creep. He's a really likable guy, right? Real business-oriented guy and so forth, okay? So what's going on here? Well, Maybe I'll have more to say, but I think a friend of mine wrote uh, a script. It's just a brief monologue. And Felix performed it, uh, the guy that's doing our youth upstairs. Felix performed it for us on the Sunday that I preached on this passage in church. Um, so I'm sure I'm not going to do as well as Felix, but I'm going to read it for you because I think that although Judas's name is not mentioned that perhaps this captures what was going on with him and why he ended up betraying Jesus. I can't. I can't. All right, have it your way. I won't. If it makes you think less of me, fine. Think what you will. You're just like the rest of them, blinded by a few well-chosen gestures and some carefully worded platitudes, drunk on the wonder of it all. You believe like I believed. You'll always believe. You want to believe. It doesn't matter what he says anymore. It doesn't matter if he lives or dies. You've made up your mind. Even if he dies, you'll convince yourself that somehow he was the savior. Oh, I know, I know. He'll come again. I gave him everything. I gave it all. Been with him from the beginning. 
I ate and I slept and I walked those dingy roads with his fish reeking Galileans. I'd have done anything for him. Do you, do you understand what he could have been? The authority, the sheer power of his will, the drive, the energy, the, the, all right, the compassion, if you want. That didn't hurt. They loved him. I don't know how many times he had them, thousands of them, eating out of the palm of his hand. Yeah, literally. They wanted him, begged him to be king more times than I can count. And they meant it. They'd have followed him just like I did. But no, not him. My kingdom is not of this world, he says. A man who can walk on water for crying out loud and all he wants to talk about is going the second mile. A man with ideas. A man who can hold people spellbound with his voice. And not just the rabble either. Pharisees, wealthy men, powerful men, centurions for God's sake. And he was there washing feet. Washing feet and telling us we ought to wash each other's. Well, not this son of Abraham. I didn't buy in to spend the best years of my life washing dirty toes and fishing for men and carrying a cross. That's always been his weakness, you know, death. No, no, he's not afraid of it. I've never seen a man more fearless, not just brave, fearless. But it's like he's, I don't know, preoccupied with it. Always talking about how a man has to give up his life to find it, has to die to live, sacrifice, surrender, self-denial. I'm tired of it. (laughs) There's irony for you. Finally, a man who can raise the dead and all he wants to do is die. Well, I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to indulge my passions. I want to fight for my rights. I want to know the feel of power. I want men to step aside when I walk into a room. I don't want to spend my whole life figuring out how to help poor lost souls who won't or can't help themselves. I don't want to be ashamed of my money or my ambitions or my thoughts. And I'm not going to wash anybody's feet. He needed someone like me. I could have helped him. I could have made him somebody. Hmm. Maybe king. Maybe even a messiah. But he wants to be a servant. Well, I serve myself like I like the hours and I like the pay. And I don't do feet. Now, a friend of mine wrote that. And I think it captures the spirit of Judas because it's the spirit of the age. It's the way we are, right? And I don't know. If you can't identify with that, then you're more saintly than me. (laughs) So, all right, we're two minutes over. God bless you for joining us online. Thank you guys for coming here.